This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 512. And the quote of the day is, a conversation is a dialogue, not a monologue. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. Hey yo, what's up everybody? Nick Ruffini here, episode 512, and I hope all is cool with you. I just got back from uh, New York City, and an exciting, eventful uh, two days there, and ended up in the, <laughs> in, in the hospital. All is good. Uh, got a clean bill of health. It was a bit of a false alarm, but uh, some things didn't get done. Some interviews didn't get done, and also you may have noticed that the Friday Email did not come out, so I apologize about that. But like I said, all is good, uh, and I'm healthy, so no need to worry about that. But it just kind of put a wrench in things. So that's what's happening in my world. So I want to get right into this conversation, and this is with Nate Wood. And this is a re-release from about three years ago. And I keep picking out some nuggets uh, in in the 500 episodes to re-release because I think that they're very important episodes. And I also think that when this episode first aired uh, since then, and deservedly so, Nate's profile is continuously growing and growing. And now I'm 100% 100 convinced that... Uh, between Josh Dion and Nate Wood that between the two of them, if they wanted to, they could take over the world. Because Nate Wood, if you've seen anything that he does live or on Instagram, he plays bass, he plays drums, he sings. Uh, it's all totally unfair for everyone else. But uh, he is just, he is a monster player. And I'm so glad that I had him on uh, a while ago. But I wanted to re-air this because, again, this was done three years ago. So there's, there's uh, a lot of you who haven't heard this episode and there's a lot of great, great information in here, timeless wisdom, tons of nuggets of info. So wanted to let this, uh, or wanted to re-release this out there for everyone. So without further ado, let's get into it with Nate Wood. Nate, how are you? Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So there's been a lot of people who have asked for me to get you on the podcast, and I've wanted to get you on the podcast for a while. Uh, I saw you, man, this was probably four years ago now, uh, at, I saw you at 55 Bar. You were playing bass, actually. You were playing with Keith and Wayne. Uh Keith and Wayne. Okay. And uh, it was amazing. And Daniel Glass and I came out, and he f- he made me come out. He was like, "Dude, you got to check out this guy, Nate." Oh, I remember that show. I remember I remember meeting Daniel at that show. I think. Okay. Okay. You yeah. met me too, but I'm not a very uh, memorable dude. But okay. Well, uh, I think of myself that way too. But <laughs> and you know um, what? I don't know. I don't know if we actually did talk. So I, I take okay. that back. But uh, but an amazing show. And the funniest thing that Daniel said to me, and 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 I don't mean this to be offensively. He said. You got to come see this guy, Nate Wood, play. He's the best drummer you've never heard of. Uh-huh. And, <laughs> and because I think that, and, you know, and, and not in an offensive way, but he's like, uh-huh. he was more saying like, man, this guy should be, like, everybody should know who this guy is. And, mm-hmm. and now I think that your, your profile has even gotten, you know, you, you're definitely getting more and more recognition as, as the days go by. Uh, so for the people who don't know, let's, let's talk a little bit about sort of who you are and, and what you do, where you come from and how you got in, got into playing, because I know that you don't just play drums, which is really interesting to me too. So, yeah, um, well, I, I started as a drummer and I still consider myself a drummer. Somebody asked me what instrument I play. I say drums. Um, that's the simplest answer. Um, and, uh, and I started when I was really young and my, both of my parents were musicians. So I was you know, given a, a, a drum set at a very young age. Um, I played a little bit, you know, from ages two to four, I think. And uh, I put them away at four because I had self-confidence issues, apparently, my parents say. <laughs> but I was, I was too hard on myself, so I was just like, I'm going to go collect baseball cards now because this drums thing is too, is too hard. So uh, I found the drums in the closet again at age nine, and I started playing then, and then that quickly became my obsession um, and, uh, yeah, so I, I was lucky enough to play, get a lot of experience playing with my parents at a young age. My dad, um, most famously, was a member of uh, Kenny Loggins' group for 10 years from, like, 79 to 89 or 90, something like that. Oh, I didn't know that. 
Yeah, and he was the musical director, uh, keyboard player, singer, wrote some songs with Kenny, um, and uh, he got the gig because Kenny was touring, Kenny was touring with Loggins and Messina with my dad's band, uh, my dad's band opening, uh, and my dad's band was called Honk at the time, and Tristan Bowden was the drummer of Honk. Um, so Tristan Bowden got the gig with Kenny, and then uh, Kenny also you know, asked my dad to join too, and my dad joined. So I grew up around Tris and a bunch of other really great drummers. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was kind of where my inspiration started was I just wanted to sound exactly like Tris. Um, I hit the drums really hard. Um, and uh, yeah, so let's see, how, how, how long do I talk? Um, so basically, but... It, <laughs> as long as you I, want. <laughs> okay. But at, at a young age, uh, I you know, we had neighbors that were English professors um, and they didn't really like like super loud drums mm. all day every day so they they put a curfew at 5pm for me to stop practicing which was basically an hour and a half after I got home from school so I could really only practice drums for like an hour, hour and a half every day um, and so at a certain point I decided well I'm just going to pick up another instrument because I can't play drums anymore um, and I didn't know about playing drums quietly because I'd never seen a jazz drummer <laughs> And that just didn't make sense to me. So I just was like, okay, I'll play guitar uh, and learn how to play. Started learning how to play guitar when I was around 12 or so. Um, and then bass a little bit later. But, uh, you know, as I said, most of my career has been playing drums until more recently I've been playing more bass. Um, but yeah, in my early days, it was mostly playing with my parents and uh, doing sessions for my dad. And he had really... He had a really high bar, you know, because he had mm -hmm. been used to playing with Tris and a lot of great drummers. So... You know, I had a lot to live up to at a young age, um, but I was doing sessions for him by the time I was like 15 or 16. Um, and uh, yeah, by the time I was 17, I was kind of gigging pro pretty much every night. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, like, uh, you know, mostly like funk and rock gigs. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't really get seriously into jazz until I went to music school. Um, and then I just realized that I was way too loud because I didn't get to play... I probably didn't get to play full volume for like four or five years, you know, what I considered full volume. Mm -hmm. So it took me kind of a while to readjust. But um, yeah, so in, in college, I got more into jazz. So where did you, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Southern California. Oh, okay. Uh, just south of, of, of uh, Los Angeles in Laguna Beach. Okay, okay. And Laguna Beach is famous for a bunch of things, but one of the things it's famous for is that uh, Taylor Hawkins grew up in Laguna Beach. Yeah. And... Uh, I used to hear Taylor practicing to rush, always practicing to rush when I was uh, playing soccer in uh, elementary school. And his, his like house was right by the, the elementary school and he would, he'd be practicing away in his garage and everybody was like, that's Taylor practicing, you know? So <laughs> that was kind of cool to grow up around. Are you, uh, are, are you in, are you and Taylor around the same age or? No, Taylor's maybe 10 years older than me. Is he really? Um, yeah. Something like that. Okay. I think, uh, and I, I don't know if you know this, but I actually played guitar in his band. Um, he I, had a. I did know that. Yeah, so that was the Laguna connection. He was like, "Yeah, I want somebody who plays drums, but then can you know also play some guitar, you know." And it, I didn't end up playing any drums on that gig, but you know, he liked the guitar playing and the singing enough to keep me around. And this was all pre-Foo Fighters, or no? It was. Uh, Post and during. It was just oh, during really? the little breaks. It was like a 2006 um, and then again in 2010. When, uh, 2010 is when Dave went on tour with Them Crooked Vultures. Mm -hmm. And we did a bunch of shows on the same bills as them. Oh, you know, cool. Them Crooked Vultures, like in Europe. So you, got, I mean, you guys knew each other growing up then? Sort of. I, it's more like we knew of each other. I think I had met him, but we, weren't like, we didn't really hang because the age difference was so big. That makes sense. You know? So how did the but, guitar gig come about with that? Um, that just came about because he, as I said, he was like, I want somebody who's primarily a drummer who can like really play my music well if I want to get, when I want to get out in front and sing, which he thought was going to be a lot. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and he, but somebody who can also play guitar and sing backgrounds and stuff like that. And it turns out that he was more comfortable just sitting at the drums the whole night and singing. So it just turned into me just playing guitar the whole time. Hmm. So that's interesting. Which was cool. Um, so, so when, when you were growing up, going through sort of the school of your father, uh, mm -hmm. were you also 
what was sort of like the learning process? Was it was it mostly playing along with records? Was it was it doing the formal stuff? Was it a blend of the two? It was pretty much all playing along to records. Like when I was first playing, when I was really young, when I was like nine or ten, like playing again, you know, um, mm-hmm. it was just playing along to records. And I can't probably like Kenny Loggins records, I'm guessing. Um, and then I got into metal. I got into like, you know, just kind of I got into glam rock and then into metal like Metallica, so it's Naked Death, that kind of stuff, and mm-hmm. then into death metal. And I got into that band Death. Um, uh, really into that band and worked on my double pedal stuff and uh, got really bad tendonitis from it, trying to just match those speeds without uh, any fair warning to my body. <laughs> and it was like, you know, probably during my biggest year of growth spurt. So it was just like the worst thing you can do is just sabotage your your joints with, you know, tempos like that. Uh, so um, so that was kind of the end of death metal for me was after that. I was like, okay, I'm just, I don't want to wreck my body. Um, and then uh, I got into kind of, I started getting more into fusion and stuff like that around then too, like the Weckl albums mm-hmm. and you know stuff with Vinny on it and Holdsworth records and stuff. Um, but whilst at the same time, like playing along pretty uh, religiously to like Steely Dan records and records where I just thought the drummers had really good time and right. uh, playing along to you know playing along to metronome and stuff. Um, and that was pretty much it. Like there was nothing formal about it. Like I didn't really understand the role of rudiments, and I was kind of anti technique just mm-hmm. because I you know there came a point where I just didn't really like, like the sound of people who I considered to have good technique like a few years after but that kind of justified my learning process at the time hmm. which of course I've done a complete 180 on it since then but um right um but yeah so it wasn't it was mostly just playing to a click and trying to play in time and uh trying to have a good feel and uh you know and then I would play along to the Holdsworth records and maybe Miles Davis four and more or some other records where I was like, I'd like to just kind of feel what this feels like, you know? Mm-hmm. And that kind of gave me a taste as to, you know, the intro into how to start playing those other kinds of music. Sure. So, yeah. the, I, I think that, and tell me if you agree, but I think that just playing long earth records is a very, uh, it's a, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's natural. No, I think it's uh, no, I think I definitely think it's natural, but I think that yeah. it's an underrated thing oh, to do. Yeah. Oh man, for sure, because it's the closest thing you can get to playing music and uh the weird thing about drums as an instrument is that it's it's inherently kind of non-musical because there's no tones associated mm-hmm. to it. So there's so many other things attached to what makes a drummer good. Um but it has to relate in some form at some point to music and uh you know, playing along to music you like gives you the best indication of how this instrument fits in, you know, because mm-hmm. if you can't keep time and you speed up or slow down all the time to this record, you know, then you're going to do it live. You know, if you don't yeah. know how to come down dynamically on the verse, that's what's going to happen live. You know, if your mm-hmm. cross stick is not as loud as your backbeat, that's going to happen live. Like all these things that you wouldn't think to work on until you're playing along to music that you like and you're like, oh, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, um, my 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 uh, favorite drum lesson when I was a kid, I was taking from this uh, this drummer named Dean but- Dean Butterworth, really good drummer who's still active, and uh, he was really into GAD and stuff like that. But he started playing kind of more old school funk when I, uh, you know, half you know a couple years into studying with him. And one day he just he was just like, "All right, just play along to Billy Jean, and let's just see what happens. Just don't play any fills." Mm-hmm. And I was like twelve years old. And that really, that lesson changed my life because I was like, this is so hard. How can this yeah. be so hard? This is the yep. first beat I learned and it's just impossible. Yep. So that's what started me on the playing along to those kinds of, you know, recordings kick, you know? Right. It, so. Like you said, the the sitting there and just like not moving and playing this yeah. thing for, you know, five minutes. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's, 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 that's to me, it's still the most impressive kind of drumming, even though I'm not really associated with that kind of drumming at all. But Mm -hmm. the guy, I really look up to the the guys who play an hour and a half and just, it feels incredible the whole time and really nothing happens. You know, that's just, that's very, very hard to do. Sure. Um, So what do you think that the, and you know, part of it, I agree is, is that, drums are atonal and you know there's no they're not a fretted instrument or a pitched instrument yeah 
so there's always I always think that there's a disconnect between sounds and music, right? And mm-hmm. trying to figure out like, okay, how does a paradiddle sound? How can you get that to sound like music? Or how does a drum beat mm-hmm. sound like music? And if you're playing whatever, say you're playing a groove and you may think it's happening and then everybody else hears it and it's like, man, that doesn't sound, it just sounds like noise. You know, it just mm-hmm. sounds like beats together. Uh, mm-hmm. what's, what's sort of your take on that of, of the disconnect and how to sort of connect those dots of learn of from patterns to music? Because at the, at the end, ultimately that's what we're trying to do is create music. Yeah. Um, well, again, I mean, just hearing it in context, you know, right away, it's just like, if you probably, if you study Shakespeare, you know, and you go use that kind of language in a conversation, it's not going to work. Um, Usually, unless you're talking with other people who who like to read that kind of stuff, you know what I mean. Like mm-hmm. it's it's all language, and uh, you bring a set, a set of tools that has like an inherent sound and kind of language to it. And if you bring it into a group of people, you're trying to have a conversation with them musically, and you know uh, you can tell right away if it works or not if you're you know if you're paying attention to that. Right. Um, so, so that's sort of the yeah. idea of of knowing knowing the vocabulary of yeah i guess so of what you're trying to say right um yeah and also knowing what will fit in you know certain genres and what won't or what or or actually more than that what will fit with certain groups of musicians and what and what won't Mm -hmm. um you know you just feel that sometimes you know and something that you can definitely relate to uh and you know we i went to that concert with you guys uh Mm -hmm. you know the stuff that keith plays with yeah. Wayne isn't going to work for Steely Dan. Right. You know what I mean? Exactly. Uh, so I, th- I, I always love the question of like, how do you, you know, how do you know what's right and what's not? I mean, yeah. I think as you develop as a player, you know that you're not going to be, if you're playing jazz, you're not playing your Megadeth right. double kick. But, uh-huh. you know, as a younger player, how do you, how do you learn that? How do you get to that point? And I don't know if it just, maybe it just comes with time. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I think the thing that uh, I'm going to try to try to answer this question, it's not really answerable, but I think the, the, the solution is just to come to music, not having your own agenda, because it's like those people who come to a conversation and they have their own agenda, like they want to tell you what they've been doing, or they want to tell you why they're great, or they want to tell you what you need to be doing or whatever, instead mm-hmm. of just coming to a conversation, like, let's just talk and see what happens. And if you're if you're honestly doing that musically, then you will make uh, better musical choices. You know, like mm-hmm. if you're if you're really trying to make music with people, you're going to feel like I shouldn't play any fills with sixteenth notes, or you know what I mean, or even right. I shouldn't my groove shouldn't be laid back with this person because it just doesn't feel good with their thing, even though I prefer it. Or you know what I mean, mm-hmm. like it's you just know when you're having a musical conversation with somebody just instinctively if you're having an honest conversation you know what's going to work and what isn't. Yeah. Um, and all, all the musicians that I love playing with, um, they're all like that. They're all not trying to prove themselves in any kind of way. They're just trying to make the music the best it can be, you know? Mm-hmm. They're, trying to make the enti- they're trying to lift the entire bandstand up. Right, you know? and not and sometimes you serving can, their ego. Sometimes you can, exactly, but sometimes you can do that by being the loudest guy in the room, but there's, there's a time and a place for that, you know? Mm-hmm. That's an interesting way of looking at it, though, of saying, you know, looking at it as a com- as a conversation of saying, hey, mm-hmm. not going into the conversation like, oh, I did this. And, you know, I, like nobody wants to hang out with that guy. Exactly. And <laughs> it's the same on stage. I mean, it's like, yeah, I mean, music might seem like it's different. Um, and I mean, if you're watching solo drummers on YouTube, that's an entirely different thing because mm-hmm. you're just watching excerpts of a of a speech, basically. You know, it's right. like uh <laughs> It's like watching uh, clips of a political candidate or something. You know, it's just like right. it's, they're just sound bites, but it's not really part of the entire musical story. I've always had uh, a hard time even watching like an Elvin Jones solo or something because uh-huh. it just feels right, because, out of context to me. Yeah, it's like what is the, yeah, there there's a reason why it's amazing and it's not because it's just it it's of itself. It's because in context it's really cool. Right. And I think that, you know, if 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 I'm allowed to say this, I think that actually changed for a period of time. Mm-hmm. I think there was a period of time I felt like where the players kind of got cleaner and more um, 
defined of what they wanted to do. And uh, the music became a little bit more like that, where you could kind of jump in and be like, ooh, that sounds really good, you know, out of context. Right. Um, but I think we're kind of coming around now again to the more conversational kind of playing. Um, I don't know. This might be my own view. But I are, just are you like, saying drummers, drummers as a whole were all, just... All, all musicians. Playing, I think like playing less musically and playing... I think are playing more musically, playing like less uh, selfishly and more musically, at least the people I'm surrounded by. I mean, you're saying before. Yeah, before. Like there was a period, I feel like, where where like jazz music wasn't really about that as much. It was more about sounding good as opposed to, uh, you know, uh, sounding good individually as opposed to sounding good as a group or something. I could I be it. wrong about that. I could be making that up, but that's just how I... I've thought about it. I've never said it out loud, so I'm just kind of working through these theories as I talk. Right. So you're <laughs> thinking it's trending in the good direction, not in the bad direction. I do, actually. Yeah, yeah. I do. do. You know, I wonder if, and and this is my opinion, and I would love to get your feedback on it, but it seems like once the the idea of buying an album mm-hmm. sort of went out the window, mm-hmm. I think that you know, obviously people's attention spans get shorter and things like that, but that pieces of music are starting to get pulled out of entire pieces and you're just getting segments of those things mm-hmm. and, and people are starting to, or people were okay with that, you know? Yeah. So like you can watch a two minute drum solo or you can hear yeah. a three minute single yeah. and not looking at the big picture and, and now I, it seems like there's almost like this, I, I, I guess I'm agreeing with you that it seems like there's this resurgence of let's look at the, at the big picture. Mm-hmm. Let's not just pull out little bits of, of the information of what's going on. Yeah, it could be. I mean, we're still kind of at the beginning of the internet and this right. like barrage of, of, of uh, input and data, you mm-hmm. know? So I think that it's really addictive addictive um that to have all this input all the time but i think people will and are coming back around to longer experiences you know mm-hmm. i don't know maybe we'll see but i but i i mean i mean in terms of just in terms of my peers and the playing that i'm a part of it's very much um it's very much about the long game and about everybody in the bandstand sounding good mm-hmm. um and uh and they actually so to to to, to to tie it into the rest of the world, into the listening world, I think the listening world, like the audience, really reacts when that's happening, right? Um, in in a more profound way, at least what I found mm-hmm. um, in talking to people after, and it connects with more people than just musicians. That's the other thing, right? So, well, they always yeah. say you shouldn't play for the for the musicians in the room, right? Yeah, right. So, right. when did you? I, I want to talk a little bit about the about you moving out to uh, out to New York and sort of. Mm-hmm how you started laying the groundwork there, because I know that there's a lot of people who want to move into, you know, move yeah. to new cities and things like that. And you're not just, I mean, you're playing with some, some A-list players and, and doing your own thing with Kneebody. And I want to talk about that as well. So what was that move? Like what prompted the move to New York? Well, I honestly, I wanted to do it a lot earlier. Um, but, uh, I ended up doing it in 2010. Uh, and the reason I didn't do it earlier is because I, I met my wife, uh, Jessica Hume, in Los Angeles in 2005, and uh, we kind of established a life together and then decided to move together. And she wanted to move also. but uh, And she's an electric bass player, and she's doing great um, out here as well. She's touring right now, so I'm home alone taking care of the dog. But um, <laughs> so the, the way that I laid the groundwork was basically through Kneebody. Um, we would come out here and play two or three times a year, uh, our trumpet player Shane Inslee, lived out here at the time. And, uh, I think our best crowds were generally here. Like we would come out here, play good shows to good audiences and people would react. And, uh, I would always try to book a little bit of extra time mm-hmm. so I could stay and see people play and stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, I was coming to see Wayne play in New York, probably as early as 2001. Um, I was on tour with this rock band called The Calling, mm-hmm. and uh, we were kind of doing a year-and-a-half-long tour. Um, I was right out of college. Um, but we spent a lot of time in New York City uh, because our the label was here, RCA was, Records was here. 
So the bass player and I would both go see uh, Wayne every Thursday, and we talk to him and say, "Hey, we're in this band, blah blah blah. We love your music, you know, mm-hmm. all that stuff." And um, you know, um, when I decided to move out here, it was it was kind of like I knew that there were enough people out here that knew who I was. I think I was probably more well known in New York than I was in Los Angeles, because I think I'm more of a New York kind of player, um, whatever anyone might think that means. But I just felt like I had more inherent value as a musician in New York and the people that I wanted to play with were here and the way that I wanted to play was here and all that stuff. Um, and I'd done a little bit of playing with Wayne. Um, I did one gig with him and Tim Lefebvre and Dave Binney. It was just two sets of free music. It was Dave's band, um, in 2008. So that was, you know, a few years before I moved here. Right. And Wayne had come to LA and we set up a double bill for him. Uh, it was Kneebody and then Wayne played after that with uh, with Tal Wilkenfeld and uh, Cliff Almond. Oh, and, nice. uh, you know, so we talked, Wayne and I talked that line, night and he's like, yeah, I want to play with you sometime, so let's keep in touch kind of thing. So, um, you know, I that was one of the things I was hoping to do when I moved here, to be honest, because um, his music had a very profound impact on how I look at music so i'm really happy that i'm getting to do that i feel like wayne's sort of like he's sort of like the gateway drug of uh yeah for for musicians coming to new york i know that there's a lot of people who are like i wanted to go to new york and i wanted uh-huh. to play with wayne or with uh-huh. or with oz you know with oz Noy. yeah um, well yeah wayne i mean wayne is is not talked about enough um i think i mean for a certain kind of musician myself uh included and for many others I mean, he's he's definitely a really important part of how I view time playing, how I view uh, harmonic concepts, how I view like a certain kind of uh, improvisation that's not jazz related. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, how I b- uh, view group improvisation, um, just a lot of things, you know. And and I, I'd say Zach Danziger and Keith Carlock are two of my biggest influences on drums, um, and. Uh, a lot of that has to do with the way that Wayne hears drums too. Um, because you see a lot of drummers play with Wayne and there's a lot of similarities between all of them. And part of that is just because Wayne's rhythmical concept is so strong and what he wants to hear from drums is so strong. And that's not to take, of course, any, anything away from those brilliant musicians. But I think that might be something that people don't realize about Wayne if they listen to his music. Um, is that he's, it's kind of Miles-esque in a way. It's right. like he's... He's enabling this music to happen. That's kind of his vision, and the players are amazing. But it's a lot of it is due to his vision, you know. Mm-hmm. So I would go so far as to say that like Wayne is a big influence on the the modern drummers, you know, like a yeah. lot of the drummers that we're listening to today. Wayne has a direct or indirect effect on how a lot of them play. So yeah, and and that's when I said a lot of people came to New York wanting to play with Wayne. It's right. a lot of drummers that I've heard. Right. Uh, that's specifically. Well, a lot of bass players. Trust me. Yeah. Because <laughs> well, I'm playing, I'm playing bass with them a lot too, and there's a lot of bass players there every night who are just like, man. So how did you, you know? Right. So. So what's? Um, yeah. Let's talk approach a little bit. Uh, okay. From playing drums with Wayne to uh-huh. playing bass with Wayne. Uh huh. Um, I mean, obviously, there's the you know the obvious differences but yeah but what's what's the approach like is there a different approach when you're going and playing drums versus playing bass i mean yes and no i mean i think his his relationships with the drums to the drums are kind of like i would say drums i i hope he's okay with me saying all this about his music but i feel like drums are the kind of his power source it's like where Mm -hmm. he gets it's it's basically the the engine and the gas kind of thing um so uh, I feel like the drums are kind of responsible for, I'm going to quote this Elvin Jones conductor, but he said, uh, Elvin Jones quote, I think he said something like the greatest thing that, uh, jazz ever did for music was replace the conductor with the drums or something like that. It was, mm. it, that was a horrible job of paraphrasing, but basically like the drums, drummer's job is to be the conductor. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I feel like that a little bit like that playing with Wayne on drums, it's like, uh, you know, there's there's definitely a lot of energy involved, and there's kind of a lot of, I don't know how do I how do how I put it. Um, but uh, I think there's more responsibility on the drummer than there is on the bass player. Let's say that. Okay. Um, and as the bass player, uh, basically, 
my job is to not play the bass in a traditional sense, which is play these bass lines that I've learned, but instead react organically to the music as it's happening. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of times he'll say like, he'll turn around and say D, but he's playing like, you know, not D. <laughs> <laughs> he's just, he just says something and it's like, it's my job to be like, okay, that's not D. Let's, that's just what it is. And I hear what you're doing and I'll compliment it. Right. Um, and uh, I mean, in, in that way, the drums and the bass are similar in that you're really not supposed to do anything you're supposed to do anytime. Like it's all about, it's really all about reacting to the moment and the mood, you know, mm -hmm. um, and not thinking like, yeah, this should happen now. Now we should really be grooving or now I should be playing fast or whatever. Right. Do you think um, that playing drums with him is you're more of a, in sort of a proactive state of mind and playing bass you're in more of a reactive state of mind? Yeah, maybe, maybe. I think they're both reactive, uh, but drums maybe is more proactive, but mm -hmm. you know, either instrument can be proactive at a certain point. If you're like, okay, the music really needs this now, just the slight little tweak in energy or tonality. Um, so in that way, but yeah, I guess because you're playing with four limbs, you just have to be more proactive. Right. Right. You know, just different instrument. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But also, oh, the, the biggest difference is that with the bass, you can really lay out a lot more and right. play probably one one hundredth the amount of information. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Roughly. Right. So, so what's it, what's the, uh, what's it like playing with, with Keith when he, when you're playing bass? Um, I mean, it's amazing. His feel is crazy good. Um, he is very reactive. Um, he has a really big sound. Um, it's very loud, but it doesn't, it's not painful. It's just, it's just very big. And, uh, mm -hmm. it sounds almost like classical in a way, like the way that a timpanist player, a timpanist would hit a, a timpani or something like it's just, there's so much size coming out of the drums. Um, right. And that's really fun to play with, and it's really impressive to be in a room with. For people who haven't seen them live, it's really like, wow, you know, yeah. it's, it's very. Especially like if you see if if you see you guys play at fifty five bar, it's uh -huh. like it's a small room, yeah, and there is a lot going on, you know. I know, and I it's don't mean that in a bad way, but there's just there's a lot of music happening. Yeah, totally. I know that's always my favorite place to see him, and a lot of a lot of my favorite drummers. That's kind of my favorite room to see them. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, that's the the great thing about playing bass is getting to play with some of my favorite drummers um and uh you know getting to learn you know just getting to learn from them you know sure um so i we did like a long tour the uh, keith and i and we did some double drumming um but most of the time i was playing bass you know but mm -hmm. i just got to watch him every night and just see like how his technique works and how his hands work and what the choices he was making musically were and all that stuff and uh you know that's just like a really cool lesson you know yeah. basically yeah that's so. it, and it's not and you're still participating in the music because you're yeah. playing you know you're not right, sitting exactly, on the sidelines watching like, oh. a drummer yeah but it's like you know i get to take note of like of of uh of events that i would never have thought of like wow that was a great idea never would have thought of that or you know how some how a certain feel will feel that i i would make it feel completely differently but you know what i mean like mm -hmm. those kinds of things and then also just drum sound like his he taught me a lot about how to get I don't know. I feel like my sound changed when I started playing with him because I, I I figured out how to get a little bit of a bigger sound um, mm. or something. I don't know. I learned from all the drummers. I mean, I learned from... I'm, I've been playing a lot with Zach uh, mm -hmm. Danziger, Keith, I mean, with Wayne now, and uh, learning a ton from him. And I'm playing a bunch with Mark Giuliano um, in uh, Donnie McCaslin's band mm -hmm. and a bunch from him. And, uh, you know, this kind of goes on. And Didn't on. you guys... You guys just did a free something uh, in the city, didn't you? For free, like a big. Custom. We did, yeah, yeah. We did a uh, the Charlie Parker Jazz Fest a couple. Yeah, of yeah. Years Daniel ago. was telling me about it. I was like, "Why?" I didn't even know about it. I don't know how I missed it, but that's a whole yeah, other story. <laughs> yeah, there's so much going on in New York all the time. But you went in. Uh, didn't you go into one of the gigs cold? Like you didn't know any of the tunes or something. Oh, I played with this this sax player Grace Kelly. The uh, the set before Donnie, um, Bill Campbell, the drummer, called me in a panic at 11 p.m. the night before, and he'd just broken his wrist. Uh, and he's like, "Can you play this gig tomorrow at noon?" You know. So, <laughs> jeez. So I played the I played I played drums with Grace Kelly um, right before 
Donnie's set, and I just I had never played the music, but uh, everybody on stage knew the music so well that it was that was easy. So well, Daniel said he played that you played your ass off, so I figured I'd relay oh, that message. Cool. Thanks. <laughs> Do you know why when you tune a drum, you're supposed to go diagonal across the drum? That's because your drum is flawed. I hate to break it to you, but your drum is flawed because of the way that the edge is. The typical edge doesn't allow the drum head to sit on it properly. So when you tighten down one lug, it causes the drum head to shift and pop up on the other side. That's why you have to tune it diagonally. But now with the new Sonicleer Edge from Mapex, that's a thing of the past. The Sonicleer Edge allows the head to sit flush. So it promotes ease of tuning, increased shell resonance, and optimal tonal clarity. So you're going to have to do a lot less work and get a lot greater sound. To learn more about the Sonicleer Edge, go to mapexdrums.com. If you haven't already, I recommend checking out the Promark Select Balance drumsticks. What they did was take standard sizes like the 5A and the 7A and then taper them differently so that you get different rebounds depending on what style of music you play. So if you play rock or country, you can use the forward balance for more power and speed. Or if you play jazz or funk or gospel, you can play a rear-weighted balance that gives you more finesse and agility. Plus with Promark, you know you're going to get a great product because they control every step of the entire process from the forest to the finished drumstick. So you're going to get quality and consistency all the time. Plus they're always paired by pitch and weight so there's no guesswork. Check them out by going to promark.com. So is there ever sort of an inner struggle with you of, of uh, I know that you said you identify more with being a drummer, but uh-huh. if if it starts leaning more towards, oh, I'm getting more bass gigs or something like that, is there ever a, a, a inner struggle of going that way farther? You know, it's a good question. Um, not really. There there have been in certain times, um, but I'm kind of looking music at music more and more as just kind of my personal art and hobby. And, uh, you know... Um, I'm practicing drums a lot and that gives me a lot of pleasure. Um, so even like these last month I was playing mostly bass, but I've, you know, came home and I've been practicing drums and mm-hmm. doing a drum gig tonight. And it, it always seems to balance out. Um, and even if it doesn't, it's, uh, it's kind of just, I've, I've found that it's at least right now I'm saying this, it's, it's more about just getting to play good music. Um, yeah. and, and I don't really care too much how I'm perceived or like, you know, how my name, what people associate with my name, or I don't know if that's right, but it's kind of true. Like I, like it's kind of more how it feels to me. And to me, it's, it's fine. Perception doesn't really bother me either way. So, and as I said, like if I'm touring with Mark or Zach or whatever, like I'm not playing drums, but I'm still learning a bunch about the drums, Mm -hmm. you know? (laughs) And like you said, you're playing with amazing musicians. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's, and, uh, you know, they inform each other a little bit too. Right. right. So, you know. so what what does a uh, what's a drum practice routine typically look like? It's always a hot topic here in the podcast. Yeah, yeah, good question. Um, now I've been doing I do a lot more like rudiments, just practicing on a pad kind of stuff than I used to. Um, just trying to get the strokes to feel uh, good because it always just translates exactly to the kit the way that it feels on on the pad, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, it's just that whole thing of like train practiced long tones all the time. And right. when you hear him play one note, it's like, it's, you feel the force of God in it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, I kind of feel that about like, you can kind of get that energy practicing on a pad too. Like it's, it's kind of funny to say that, but you can, you can have that feeling too of like, wow, everything's really clicking right now. And I know that this will translate to a kit and it usually does. Mm-hmm. So, when I'm on the road, I do a lot of that, a lot of like practicing on a pad and getting strokes to sound good and ideas to come out and stuff like that. But on the kit, I've been practicing a lot of improvising um, with and without a click, like more soloistic stuff than I used to. I've been practicing more moving around the kit physically, which I never practiced. I never saw a reason to, but clearly that's something that's hard to do and I just never thought to do it. Mm-hmm. So just playing phrases single strokes around the drums just so i can get from one drum to the next and um not stay on one set of instrumentation for too long uh i've been practicing playing two metronome 
on the 16th note, uh, the E or the A, uh, hmm. um, which I learned from Larnell Lewis. Um, I saw him play uh, a snarky puppy show and I went up and talked to him because his, I just thought his time was amazing. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, this is, this is how I practice uh, to the 16th on the E and uh. So I've been, that's the only way I practice now when I practice through metronome. Um, what, so and, uh, l- let's unpack that a little bit. Like uh-huh. walk through. Uh, yeah. So, so how like, you're... Uh, 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 you know, uh, right. <laughs> yeah, so it's, I don't know if you can hear it, but it, like yeah. that's on the uh or whatever I'm mm-hmm. playing. Like, so the click is the, is the, uh, is the and you're just playing the way that you play to an usual click, except now it's on the, uh, so it's, or the E trying to move it around. But what that does is it makes you focus on. So you're moving the downbeats to the, to the E's and the O's. The entire thing, like the, the, all the clicks are just on the E or the uh. Like right. you're never playing a down, you're not playing one, two, three, four. You right. know, all the click is going, you know, one E, two right. E, three E, four E. And that's what's hard about it, or what struck me about it at first was how more, how much more grid like you have to be. You know, it's less like, oh, I'm just laying back. You know, it's my feel, whatever. It's more like if you rub or you, or you tend to push or something like that, these things will really expose themselves if you're practicing like that. Um, and uh, so it, your body starts making adjustments really quickly. Whereas mm-hmm. if you've been playing to a certain tempo that's hard for you for a long time, um, you will find new things that you, um, you, will, you will expose more weaknesses quickly this way. So are you playing... Uh... I, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying, but I just wanted to clarify. So are you, if you, if you have the click on the, whatever upbeat it is, if it's on the E's or uh-huh. the O's, um, uh-huh. so are you, are you playing a, are you playing a downbeat on that E and uh and just, no. a, and hearing no, it? No, I'm or? just playing, I'm just playing the drums the way that I would normally play them. I got so, you. And then just yeah. having the click in the background on the E's exactly. and O's. I got you. Yeah, and it's weird. It's it kind of becomes more of a percussion instrument, but it's immovable. And uh, as I said, you really have to be conscious of literally every stroke because, mm-hmm. um, and and then you know soloing to that too is like a whole other thing. It's just it's it's <laughs> how uh, often do you uh, fall onto the onto the click and hear it as you the know downbeat? What? I've gotten pretty good at it. Like <laughs> I've been doing it now for five or six months, and for the most part, I I can stick to it. And uh, the the main thing is that. It's really translated. I feel like live, uh, I just find it easier to lock into people on stage and, hmm. um, you know, also hold my ground better. It just it just seems to be a more effective way of practicing to the metronome. Right. And I'm guessing that... Quest- well, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say the real question is uh, <laughs> doing sessions where you actually have to play with the, the metronome on the beats again. How is that? But, right. um, <laughs> but that actually is just I found that I'm so on the metronome now when I have to do that, that it's a little bit startling. Like I have hmm. to relearn, you know, because it's, it just gets finer. So, anyway. so, and I'm guessing when you first started it, your body started, you started to make adjustments to where you yeah. started hearing it on the downbeat again, right? Like you yes, started hearing exactly. it on, on, you know, the, the, or any of the downbeats. Yeah. And also, you know, what was surprised me was it, it made me not take uh, certain things for granted. Like I, I noticed, listening back to myself that I tend to not play a lot of downbeats. And when the metronome is not giving you help on the downbeat, you end up playing more downbeats. Um, so hmm. that was another like unintended consequence of this whole thing, which is actually, again, is translated really well. Huh? So, well, I know um, what I'm going to practice. Yeah. I mean, I want to check it out. Insane. I want to try. <laughs> I actually, I did a, 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 a series of gigs with some, some local musicians, uh, one of which was this bass player, Simon Jerman, and I told him that I was working on that exercise. And the next week he came back and we played together and I was like, wow, we are so locked today. It's almost a little bit scary. And after the show, I was like, did you work on that exercise this week? And he's like, yeah, I totally did. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because it was like I felt like I was on some kind of crazy computer grid because he had been working on it, too. Um, so it clearly it works. You know? Right. Um, yeah. Well, anyway. I'm sold. Yeah. You're definitely, um, uh, you definitely got me sold. So, yeah. And then, so, and more, more practice routine stuff. I've been working on playing quieter in general, like playing fast, but playing quiet. Like I can play, 
fast, quiet on a bop tuned kit, but doing it on kind of a big, low, thunderous, powerful kit is is a whole other ball game kind of. And uh, I've been working on that and getting that kind of fineness out of the sound mm-hmm. um, on a bigger kit um, and being able to have a wider dynamic range, basically, that I'm comfortable with. Yeah, so. I get, you know, the, the two hardest things are fast and quiet and, you know, right. slow and loud, I guess. Right, exactly. Right. <laughs> Uh, so let's talk about, let's talk about some projects that you have going on. I know you have Kneebody going on and I want to make sure that, you know, people can see you somewhere, see you playing either bass or drums or both. Um, yeah. Um, well, Kneebody's on a little bit of a hiatus right now. Uh, I actually did just finish mixing our new record today. Um, and I'm going to master it at the end of the week and, uh, that should be out next spring. Uh, so we're going to start doing a lot of more touring dates around then. Um, and in the near future, I have uh, a fair bit of touring with Wayne Krantz and Zach Danziger. So uh, he bass. mentioned that. Yeah, yeah, I'm playing bass. Uh, and uh, I, I do like a week from October 3rd to October 9th around the States, around the East Coast. And then I actually go on tour with Donnie McCaslin playing drums uh, for like a week and a half, um, subbing for Mark. Um, and then, and that's also in the Midwest or I think probably, and then, uh, and then I join back with, uh, with Wayne and, and Zach and, uh, we finished another couple weeks nice. in the U S and, uh, Japan and China. And then for the rest of the year, yeah, just, uh, more playing with Donnie and Wayne and, uh, some other things here and there. Cool. So, yeah. So where, um, where, or well, two questions. One, do you, do you teach privately? I don't No. Okay. Uh, I'm a, I'm not a teacher. I don't know how to break things down. I don't really know what I'm doing or why I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's really fun. Like talking to Mark, for instance, cause Mark is just, I can tell I've never seen it, but I can tell he's an incredible teacher just based on the, his enthusiasm for the drums mm-hmm. and the way that he talks about ideas. And he was like talking about his bike, his book when he was writing it and all that stuff. And, uh, it was really, you know, interesting. And he clearly, you know, has that mind for it. So some people I feel, you know, just have that. And I, I just don't, right. just don't have it. So uh, I, I, I master records instead. That's my teaching. Oh, nice. <laughs> That's my way of staying home. And so, uh, you know, I'm mastering like four or five records a week when I'm home. Oh, wow. Well, that so. makes, I mean, I think that a lot of people, and I've voiced my opinions about this before that I think a lot of people get into teaching whether they enjoy it or not, or whether they're good at it or not, just to make the extra bread. Yeah. And totally. I, I'm the same way you are. Um, I, I just, I don't enjoy teaching. Yeah. I, I'm not good at it, so I don't right. enjoy it. And yeah. So there has to be some kind of natural thing there, um, in some way that you can articulate your process. Um, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So, well, I, I mean, this is what I enjoy. So I think that this is education and teaching and giving back to the community in a different way. Yeah, it absolutely is. You for know, sure. So, yeah. God so bless the internet. what's that? God bless the internet. I know. I know. It's amazing that, that we can record this and, you know, it can go up on the internet and people all around the world can listen to it instantaneously. Yeah. That's I know. still blows my mind. Me too. Absolutely yeah. blows my mind. It's amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So where's the best place for people to follow you to keep up with what you're doing to, to check out tour dates and all that kind of stuff? Uh, friend me on Facebook. I, I probably should make a page like a professional page, but I haven't, but I will. Um, kneebody.com. Um, you can check out my mastering website at Carisabome Mastering. That's K-E-R-S-E-B-O-O-M, mastering. It's a Dutch word. Um, and then other than that, I don't know. Google seems to know. <laughs> i don't know all right i'm yeah. uh writing all this stuff down now so i can in- include it in the show notes and i'll put everything uh in the show notes so that so that people can find you can get in touch uh, with you oh you know what you can you can put this to my my site's out of date but you can put natewoodmusic.net um because i i have uh i've been also doing this a lot which we haven't talked about at all because there's really no reason to but um we, I, I have a we can talk about a side it. I have a side project of uh, where I play all the instruments and uh, and uh, you know record kind of pop jazz music and I made three records and that's what my homepage is about is natewoodmusic.net. Um, ah. So uh, and then when I play that stuff live, I uh, I play guitar and sing and I've mostly been playing 
in New York. Uh, and again, I get to hire my favorite drummers, which is insane. Nice. Um, so, yeah. So there's another website. Well, I gotta, I gotta track you down again and see where you're, see where you're playing next. I definitely wanna, wanna come see you again. I wanna see. I've, I've actually never seen you play drums. I've seen you play bass, but I haven't seen you play drums. So. Oh, cool. Well, too bad you're leaving tomorrow. I am playing tonight, but. Yeah, I got a I got a five forty five flight tomorrow. So fun. (laughs) Or no, not a five forty five. I have to get up at five forty five. So uh huh. Okay. Not too bad though. Yeah. Um. But I'm glad that we made this happen because because when I got when I get home, uh, you'll be on the road, and then who knows where where the world's gonna take us from there. So I appreciate you doing. What's that? (laughs) The years slip by. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. But I, I appreciate you doing this. Uh, I know, like I said, I've been wanting to get you on for a while. I've had a lot of people that have wanted to get you on for a while. So it was great to great to chat with you about music and, and all of the happenings that you have going on. And, you know, you're welcome back anytime, man. And I'll definitely I'll definitely come out to see you live soon. And I encourage everybody who's who's out and about uh, to come see you as well. Cool. Thanks so much. Nate, thank you, man. And uh, enjoy the rest of your day. All right, cool. Have fun on your trip. All right. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Okay, bye. was the one and only Nate Wood and be sure to check out the show notes you can go to drummersresource.com forward slash session 512 if you haven't already do me a favor leave a rating leave a review you can do that on iTunes it takes about a minute and it just shows your support for the podcast but also lets other people know that they should be listening to this podcast and share it with your friends tag you know tag us on uh, on Instagram or on Facebook or I'm on Twitter at the Nick Ruffini there is no drummers resource uh, Twitter account but tag us on all the socials we'll repost all that fun stuff but just always trying to get the word out and let everyone know that you know there's 500 and some free episodes for everyone to check out and that's all i got so until the next podcast keep drumming thank you so much for listening and i will be talking to you soon peace